You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years. On this episode, we're going to get philosophical. Instead of jumping into something open banking related right out of the gate, we're going to take a large step back and discuss things like the global financial system, human behavior, fundamental uncertainty, and irreversible time. For those who like the big picture, this one is for you. Here, we take on the philosophical questions that underlie the open banking movement. Questions about how to build a better economy and a better society, both for individuals and for everyone. A system that is better tailored to how we actually behave as human beings, not just as economic agents. A system better able to withstand the shocks of these uncertain times. We explore the problems that exist in the current system and why they exist. And then we talk about how radical transparency might just be the solution, not only to a better financial system, but to a more inclusive and open world. In this episode, I'm chatting with IBM's Global Research Lead for Financial Services, Paolo Cerrone. Paolo is an elected member of IBM's Industry Academy. He mentors top managers on business transformation and has authored several well-known books on financial technology and innovation. Paolo is also the co-host of Breaking Banks Europe, one of the world's most popular fintech podcasts. His most recent book, Financial Market Transparency, or FMT, puts forth a theory that places transparency at the heart of a radical new approach to economic theory. I spoke to Paolo about his theory. Paolo, welcome to the show. Thanks for hosting me. Let's get right down to it. In your most recent book, FMT, Financial Market Transparency, you suggest completely reimagining how we think of financial markets and economics in general. Although your book is pretty dense, is it possible to sum up your theory in a simple way? I think that the most complex innovation of all is about changing the way we believe the world works and so finance. In essence, money is an emotional problem for people because it is linked to the biological micro-foundations of our relationship with finance, which are these two elements called fundamental uncertainty and irreversibility of time. Basically, uncertainty means that we need to survive in life. That's what the Homo sapiens had to do when it came to the planet. And we also need to make sure that our money survives. On the other side, the Homo sapiens needs to be not just happy, but to have a purpose because uh, his time goes in one direction only, from birth to death. And we also know that we need to make sure we invest our money with purpose and we make economic decisions with purpose. So you see that if we understand the real elements that create human consciousness and our relationship with money, which are fundamental uncertainty and the irreversibility of time, we have a criteria to revise 
completely the way the economic infrastructure and the infrastructure of finance operates today towards a different business model for banks that can have good impacts on society. So what you're implying is that today's financial system doesn't really deal with uncertainty in a very good way. Can you elaborate on what we could be doing differently? Well, let's say, first of all, that it's not just me saying that. After the global financial crisis started in 2008, the regulators introduced the concept of stress test, recognizing that the risk measurement that were used up to the point were not complete enough. Even the former governor of the Bank of England, Mr. Carney, started discussing the relevance of making climate change-related stress tests in order to invite financial institutions to look into the future in a different way, conceiving things that are not being measurable today, but may occur as a problem as we move forward. Last but not least, in September 2019, the European Parliament asked the Econ Committee to write a paper to address the new course of the European Central Bank Now, this paper identifies three key elements that, according to the opinion of these relevant economists, the European Central Bank should look and try to resolve in the coming years. The first one is negative interest rate. That cannot be further negative. The the second, they say, is the European market union, which is incomplete. But the third, which links to your question, is the most important. They basically recognize that we live in times of high fundamental uncertainty. And they say that it is a property of fundamental uncertainty that it cannot be measured. So it requires a complete new way of thinking about the problem in order to make decisions that enable us to have a positive impact on society so that economies and societies become inclusive again. There's two concepts which Paolo brings up over and over again fundamental uncertainty, and the irreversibility of time. Since you're going to hear these terms several times over the course of this interview, let's take a moment to explain what they mean. Fundamental uncertainty is the concept that you can't tell the future, no matter what. Even if you had all the data in the world and an infinitely powerful computer, it wouldn't matter, because some things just can't be predicted. And those things can ripple into other, bigger things, which can, in turn, change everything. One famous philosopher who made a career out of this stuff is Nicholas Nassim Taleb, author of The Black Swan and Anti-Fragile, in case you want to learn more. The irreversibility of time is the idea that human beings, homo sapiens, experience time in a straight line from birth to death. Some say this perception may just be in our minds, but the forward march of time certainly does affect our behavior, adding an emotional, often irrational, element to our economic decision-making. Now, if we live in times of high fundamental uncertainty, that makes things harder to predict. And then on top of that, we've started to recognize that humans, based on rational choices, instead they're based largely on emotions, that makes things even harder to predict. The problem is that most financial models being used today assume that they can, in fact, predict things accurately. But when Paolo examined those models, he found 
that they simply did not account for fundamental uncertainty or the human reaction to the irreversibility of time. FMT is his attempt to come up with a better model. So knowing all of these, uh, the theory and principle of financial market transparency, that it is the produce of 10 years of my personal and professional research, want to address exactly the problem of how we deal with fundamental uncertainty in our decision-making and how we make sure that our decision-making is ethical to synchronize for what really matters for the planet and for humanity, which are the ultimate and long-term goals. So you basically see that uh, while the world was discussing the fact that fundamental uncertainty was rising, I asked myself, how can we define a criteria to better relate with fundamental uncertainty so that we produce better outcomes compared to those that we are producing today? And that is basically the essence of the FMT principles and theory. In your work, you introduce the term homo economicus. Can you elaborate on that idea? The homo economicus is the assumption of neoclassical theory that proved not to be correct in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. Alan Grispan himself, former chairman of the U.S. Federal Reserve at the time of the default to Lehman Brothers, explained the concept in front of the U.S. Senate when he was asked to explain to the congressman where the financial crisis was coming from. He said that he was concerned by the fact that the theory that he believed was representing reality was not working anymore and there was no evidence that it could work in the future. Let's take a moment to understand what a big deal this actually was. For those who aren't familiar, the global financial crisis of 2008, sometimes called the Great Recession, wreaked havoc on economies all around the world. At the heart of the crisis were opaque financial instruments sold in confusing and sometimes even predatory ways. Bad mortgages were turned into bad securities, which were turned into bad bundles of securities, all of which kept getting sold up the pyramid, all with the blessing of regulators and ratings agencies. Companies that misbehaved got bailed out anyway because they were deemed too big to fail. The whole thing felt like a giant global con. There were even a couple of Oscar-winning movies about it, the 2011 documentary Inside Job and the 2015 film The Big Short tell the story very well. In the aftermath of that crisis, Alan Greenspan, renowned former chairman of the U.S. Federal Reserve, nicknamed The Maestro, is brought before Congress and asked, essentially, what happened? Here was the exchange between Representative Henry Waxman and Alan Greenspan on October 23, 2008. You found a flaw in the reality. A flaw in the model that I perceived is the critical functioning structure that defines how the world works, so to speak. In other words, you found that your your view of the world, your ideology, was not right. It was not working. Precisely. That moment was like a bomb dropping on modern economic theory. 
Here was the man himself, Alan Greenspan, one of the godfathers of neoclassical economics, a man who molded countless bankers and business leaders in the Chicago school, the approach based on rationality and individualism that came to dominate the global economy. Here was the master of the masters of the universe, admitting that his theory, the economic theory that the whole world runs on, is fundamentally flawed. In Paolo's terms, the problem with Mr. Greenspan's theory is that he assumed we are a creature called Homo economicus, a rational actor that makes efficient choices based on sound data. For Homo economicus, what matters most is improving their individual position. And emotions don't really play much of a role. There's just one problem. Homo economicus doesn't really exist. We are, in fact, Homo sapiens. Back to Paolo. This old theory is based uh, more or less upon the idea that the Homo is economicus, therefore, in the presence of enough information, can make a rational decision and optimize an economic system. However, since uh, the Homo is not economicus, the agents are not rational, Efficiency cannot be found using the current data and the current way of thinking, although that seemed to be relevant and useful for the previous 40 years. So then if the Homo economics doesn't exist, what really lives on the planet is the Homo sapiens, but we need to understand the essence and the reality of the Homo sapiens. If the whole basis of modern economics is this homo economicus, this rational actor, but they don't really exist, and we're, in fact, irrational, have economic theories started to appear that address this switch? Is this where behavioral economists come in? So then is when uh, even the behavioral scientists uh, started uh, moving beyond uh, the previous theory discussing the concept of rationality and irrationality. At the very beginning, they sort of thought that sapiens is not rational. We can nudge the homo sapiens, so we push him back to the nature of the homo economicus, and then we can use the previous theory. But that is not possible. They also realized that the dichotomy rationality and irrationality was not correct, because that is not the reality of individuals. The fact is that the rationality is only true exposed never before, and emotions are relevant when uncertainty is very high. So that is when I thought, okay, placing the Homo sapiens at the center of uh, economic decision-making means reconnecting with the real needs of uh, Homo sapiens, uh, which finance can uh, represent in a vivid way because of the nature of uh, the financial problem. The premise of Paolo's theory is coming into view. The current financial system is built for Homo economicus, a mythical creature whose behavior is rational and predictable. So the model doesn't really work. What we need instead is a system built for Homo sapiens, based on how real people with real needs actually behave. People who are sometimes irrational, especially when dealing with uncertainty. So what role does transparency play in helping to create that new system? Transparency is fundamental to resolve uh, the problem of the asymmetry of information in a way 
that the finance starts creating value generating interactions which are good uh, and well balanced uh, across the community of participants therefore uh, the stakeholders the shareholders and the clients themselves basically the real source of uh, revenues um, in banking and financial markets is the asymmetry of information the neoclassical theory and the assumption that uh, clients are home economicus um, would lead to the false uh, belief that if I can bring more information inside the system, people will be able to understand value in a different way and basically they will reposition. Unfortunately, this is not the case because when it comes to finance and most of the financial offers, the asymmetry of information is not grounded on information, but is grounded in the biology of the Homo sapiens. Therefore, in uh, their spatial relationship with the concept of uncertainty and the concept of time. This idea of the asymmetry of information, let's try and make it a little more real. Say you're trying to compare the different offers available from several banks. Why does this asymmetry come into play? Because largely speaking, the clients are incapable to pull the offers uh, off the shelf of uh, banks and other financial institutions as they have a hard time in understanding the real value of their offers. Now, transparency enables to reveal uh, these elements because transparency is about incentives, costs, and consequences that reconnects every participant of uh, the banking platform with the reality that nobody owns the future. And therefore, what matters is not just to sell opportunities, but to help individuals and clients to become way more aware compared to what they are today about the real problem of finance that they have to resolve when they save, when they invest, when they borrow, when they try to retire. So transparency created those consequentialist ethics that will realign the interest of all of the participants onto this economic platform in order to generate a higher benefit for everyone. According to Paolo, there is a better way. The real needs of Homo sapiens can be accurately represented in the financial system, but they are not today. Instead, the current model is largely based on an asymmetry of information and opaque pricing. In Paolo's view, we need to make an economy that works for everyone, instead of one that everyone knows is a little broken, even Mr. Greenspan. And here, there certainly is a shared motive with open banking. Back to Paolo. The legislators who came up with open banking laws also talked about the great financial crisis of 2008 and too big to fail, and how that represented a fundamental flaw in our financial system. Except some say that all of this price transparency would drive banks into the position of starved utilities with razor-thin margins. In FMT, you suggest that there are new sources of revenue based on guiding investors through a, quote, empathic and transparent relationship-based journey. Can you elaborate on how that might work? Transparency is a foundational principle for ethical behavior. There's no doubt about that. Now, the 
profitability problem of uh, the financial services industry comes from the fact that across the board, the margins uh, are contracting and compressing uh, progressively. If you look at the interest rate margin after the default of Lehman Brothers, uh, the regulators had to lift the cost of capital and lower the interest rate, particularly in Europe and now also in the US. The consequence of this is that there is no value for the shareholders, which creates a lot of implications in terms of banks being a mechanism of monetary transmission. We saw very recently the Fed attempt to intervene to resolve the anxiety on the financial markets due to the coronavirus outbreak. And the fact that effectively banks, although they were holding a lot of liquidities, were not capable of transmitting this to the larger economy, basically being a mechanism of monetary transmission with the function of lending. On the other side, we see that the payments are going to be fairly disintermediated because they're very symmetrical offers and technology there can play an immediate and a very interesting role. So banks are basically facing this very complex challenge of transforming from credit institutions into center of competencies that accelerate in the relationship with individuals while the margins are basically being compressed and they're left with the result that maybe only volume businesses can survive, but volume businesses do not enable them to position relationships which are where the homo sapiens basically find these motivations to do finance in order to resolve the problems with the fundamental uncertainty concept and the concept of irreversible time. Okay, you're saying that the bank's value is moving from products to relationships and advice. How did you incorporate that into your theory? So that is when I thought that, well, if this transformation is happening anyway, basically from mechanisms of monetary transmission towards competence centers that deliver value to the individuals for their decision-making process, I need to define this value. And this value is basically the one of creating transparently behavioral awareness that enables individuals to remunerate the relationship outside the products whose margins are getting lower and lower inside the relationship with the final banker, whether this banker is a private banker, a relationship manager, a digital product, it doesn't really matter per se, as long as the final client recognizes the value of that relationship. Let's explore that a bit. I'd like to zoom in and take a look at specific bank activities and then zoom out and take a look at the broader picture. Let's zoom in first. In your book, you talk about banks moving from product selling to advice, from investment solutions to relationships. If you walked into the bank of the future, what kind of services would you like to see them offer that they don't offer today? Only two years ago, I was speaking at Paris Fintech Forum after Frédérico Dea, the CEO of Société Générale. Now, Frédérico Dea said that the real transformation of uh, the banking industry is the one from transactions to services, which, uh, in my simple language, I explained after him, means uh, making money by selling products through a distribution channel of products, knowing that the margins of their products is going to be squeezed further and further, to packaging those products into a mechanism called the financial advice or planning 
that the clients are happy to pay for transparently. Now, this is indeed the complex journey, but it's the journey that is happening. Why it is happening? Let's take a look at the balance sheet of banks uh, in their income statement. You've got two areas. You have the interest rate margin and you have the intermediation margin. Now, the interest rate margin is very troubled these days because in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, the central banks lowered the interest rate to save the economy. Now they are negative in Europe, if not zero. They are going to be very, very low in the United States of America as well and Canada too. The consequence is that after the price for risk, there's no much value for the shareholders. If you even conceive that central bank digital currencies may be the new norm, you realize that anytime soon, financial institutions will not be that efficient mechanism of the transmission of the monetary policy any longer. So basically, their capability of justifying their existence is very much reduced. Now, what happens here is that you can only think about passive investing, the vanguardization of financial products, the fact that some ETF now are sold with negative commissions. And there's also a lot of regulation which is enforcing transparency rules to reveal the margins, forcing a further reduction of the market-making opportunities in front of the final clientele. That means that even though banks have found a safe haven from interest margins into intermediation margins. Even there, they know that the situation is not as easy as they used to be. Therefore, only by transforming relationship management techniques in a way that you can elicit from clients a satisfaction and ask the clients to pay for those services directly, banks will be capable of remaining competitive against the big technology players. A simple question, will the banks survive in the face of these big technology players? So there may be big tech companies like in China or very few banks dominating the volume business in financial markets. All the other banks, if they want to survive, they will have to come up with a very thorough and compelling value-based proposition in front of their clients. Therefore, we know that we need to strengthen the relationships, which are that mechanism that enables the homo sapiens to relate with the fundamental uncertainty and the reversibility of time. Therefore, making more aware decisions, recognizing the value of their decisions, and being capable of paying back to the financial institution. To conclude, if banks cannot be efficient mechanisms of the monetary policy transmission, but still, it is important that they participate into the lending activities in front of the clientele. The only way for them to remunerate that is to position this element inside the financial planning exercise that aggregates the interest of their clientele. Because the personalization that everybody looks for doesn't really come from understanding the assets but comes from understanding the liabilities of individuals. Assets tend to commoditize, but from a liability perspective, everyone is different. And the combination of these two can generate new value. But that means banks don't start from the lending operation anymore. They start from the planning operation and aggregate lending inside a new type of relationship. And there you have it. Banks need to shift from financial products to financial advice, from selling solutions 
to building relationships. Instead of leading with lending, they should lead with planning. The fact is that in the face of ever-shrinking margins, this idea is already taking hold with banks the world over. But in order to provide that unique value based on rich advice, especially in a way that can deal with uncertainty, you have to have a holistic view. You have to be able to see everything about a client across all of their activity, both within the banking ecosystem and beyond. Is that the role open banking plays in making this real? Here's Paolo's answer. You're very right. Open banking is exactly this, the opportunity of blurring the lines across a variety of business units that operate inside the same financial institutions, blurring the lines across financial institutions, knowing that clients may have multiple relationships, blurring the line between banking and insurance, because they are part of financial decision-making of individuals, blurring the lines between banking and non-banking, because uh, decision-making of people is about saving as much as spending, investing as much as enjoying consumption. We've been discussing for a few years the concept of the data-driven bank, and we saw the difficulty of building a data-driven bank. This is because we missed an element which is a very important element. The fact that even before building the data-driven bank, we need to learn how to build the data-enabled client. So this notion of the data-driven bank and the data-enabled client, how does that relate to what you've often written about banks becoming platforms? Well, the platformization uh, of banking is a process uh, that has started because it's a process that aggregates the whole economy. Basically, economies need to transform from uh, output economies to outcome economies. That's the first concept that we need to understand. What does it mean? Output economy means uh, BMW wants to sell uh, 1 million cars uh, in 2021. A bank wants to sell 10 million asset under management of a certain fund. That's an output economy. An outcome economy means BMW wants to mobilize with car sharing 2 million customers in 2021. In banking, that means the bank wants to help its customers to achieve their financial goals through the process of financial advice, which we said is the ultimate goal of banking. Now, how do you create, therefore, a platform that enables the bank to position this value? Thinking about the data-driven bank is not enough. If you do not resolve the problem of people's motivation to access the platform and to become a bit more self-directed, which is the concept of the data-enabled client. Now, this is what fintech basically missed, largely speaking, in the last years, to resolve the motivational problem of people. Therefore, the fact that data enabling the client is the first step without which data driven the bank will not generate sufficient monetization. Okay, that's clear. To get to the data-driven bank, we need to first have data-enabled clients. So how do we data-enable clients? Well, we learned that uh, the client is not an homo economicus, a rational individual. The client is homo sapiens, and he has a harder time in understanding 
the concept of finance because of his emotional relationship with money, with the idea of fundamental uncertainty and the irreversibility of time. Therefore, the first thing to be done is to face the problem of digitizing knowledge with uh, elements like artificial intelligence that can operate uh, in two ways. For all of those clients that need to talk to a financial advisor, so banks need to make sure that these advisors are fed with more factual information that is relevant for the individuals and they can be delivered with a convenient and compelling user experience. For all of those clients instead that are capable of self-directing themselves, they need to enter into a sort of you know, artificial conversation is conversational banking that would enable them to relate with the financial problem in a different way. Once that is resolved, the data-driven bank can start generating more value, not only for the client, but also for the financial institutions. But it's not possible to flip the order of these two elements. Now let's zoom out a little bit. This isn't just about holistic views of client information so we can offer better financial products and more price transparency. There's a bigger picture here. In your book, you talk about moving from reductionism to holism, moving from closed systems to open systems, and about creating a more holistic view of the financial system at large, not just for individual people. Can you explain why that's so important? One of the problems of capitalism today or the modern economies is that they became too much reductionist. So everybody tries to optimize his own little piece. And most of all, everybody's focused on the short term. Instead, we need to find a way to regain the capability of seeing the full picture, making capitalism inclusive again, and resolving some of the compelling problem of humanity and our planet, which uh, cannot be confined to a single nation, to a single situation, but basically needs to be resolved at the global level. We don't know everything about the future. Therefore, we always need to be ready to create an economic interaction in a way that we can foresee and face moments of big stress and uncertainty avoiding that the economics uh, construct uh, collapses. So in the end, uh, the financial market transparency theory brings this uh, philosophical and epistemological uh, novelty, which invites uh, individuals and decision makers uh, to move out of uh, current determinism and embrace uh, the open future, which is about uh, embracing holism. I believe that if we start from finance, which is facing the problem of survival and purpose, we can transfer this to the overall economy and society, and we will make something fundamental in our world. We will make sure that the invisible hand becomes visible again. Therefore, capitalism, preserving liberal values, becomes inclusive again, as currently it is not anymore. In your book, You say it's important for this new system to recognize that, and I quote, the interaction between human agents and reality are based on emotions and imagination to cope with fundamental uncertainty. Do you really think it's possible to build an economic system on emotions and imagination? What I mean is not that you need to become emotional or only imaginative in order to make economic decisions. What I mean is that uh, fundamental uncertainty as uh, a characteristic uh, 
that it cannot be measured. And as it cannot be measured, it can only be imagined. Who would have possibly imagined that we would have faced the coronavirus outbreak? Well, we had some imagination about that, but we prefer to believe that that would be distant into the future or would be exogenous to our decision-making process because in Italy, the thought is about China. And then in France, they thought always about Italy. And then in the US, they thought it's about Europe. And instead, this is already an unfortunately living and breathing in the streets of Wall Street. Now, that is the power of imagination, therefore, to remind us that we don't know everything about the future. And even though we have at our disposal a large amount of data, big data will never contain everything to represent what can happen tomorrow. Only by starting from this element, we avoid falling into the trap of looking for a new efficient algorithm that instead of operating for the good, falls into the operations of the bad and the evil. So that's why recognizing the value of emotions and the relevance of imaginations enable us to make decisions that might not seem rational or economic convenient today, but instead making sure that those decisions are justified and made so that when the problem occurs, when fundamental uncertainty rises, we are not unprepared, so we don't collapse, we face a problem, but we survive. My favorite quote from your book has to be the closing line. The future is open. What does the open future look like? Well, the open future looks like uh, something that we don't know about them. It's a future which is uh, plenty of problems, but it's a future that is also plenty of opportunities. What matters to me is that uh, only by recognizing that the future is open, we don't overimpose uh, on ourselves uh, assumptions, uh, theories and ideologies which do not enable us to survive and to build progress. Everybody is excited by the latest piece of technology, the latest gadget, the latest idea. But if we are not transparent about incentive, cost and consequences of all of these elements, building change does not create progress. So to make sure that in the open future, we position progress and not only change. We need to infuse transparency as a foundational principle into everything we do, feeling reassured that transparency can go hand in hand with privacy, because the opposite of transparency is not privacy, but opacity. And the open future is bright, it's not opaque. Paolo, thank you so much for being on the show today. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Well, I'm always very active on LinkedIn, so you can connect uh, to me on LinkedIn or you can visit my website, thepcironi.com, and basically take a look at what I'm doing. Despite its ongoing growth, the global financial system continues to struggle with challenges like low interest rates, stagnation, and rising inequality. There are those who say these challenges simply cannot be solved because the system is flawed. Our guest Paolo says this flaw exists because our economic models just aren't built to cope with fundamental uncertainty, let alone our often irrational decision-making. He suggests building a new model 
one that puts transparency at the center. Rather than value coming from one side having more information than the other, all that information is out in the open for everyone to see and share. And suddenly, financial services become very different. Products become easy to compare and switch, so the focus shifts to advice and relationships, things that offer real value to clients in a very personal and genuine way. Here, open banking plays a critical role. Open banking is what makes financial market transparency possible. Indeed, transparency is one of the main goals open banking is trying to achieve. Through transparency, open banking aims to create an economy that is more fair and stable, more competitive and efficient, and more in touch with the real needs of real people. Transparency is one of the cornerstones of open banking and it will continue to play a key role in the building of the open future. Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode was made possible by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years and creators of the Amplify platform. To learn more, visit axway.com.